Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I actually did surveys of politicians and their staff in state legislatures across the country. And I asked them, you know, how often did bills do what you thought they would? And very, very few politicians said that they usually did what they thought they would. Hello and welcome to Desert Klan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. About a week. (laughs) A week in American politics. Um, This episode is not going to be about the campaign, although we're going to have a bunch of campaign episodes coming. um, And are going to be joining some debates on the show that I think are important to do in October. So it's going to be a a big month on the show. But before we got to that, I wanted to talk about something that hopefully will happen after the campaign, which is actual legislation on climate change. And we've been talking about this issue a bunch on the show because it is one of the central issues facing humanity, not just America. But we often talk about it in terms of idealized policy. Like if you listen to the Saul Griffith episode about decarbonizing the economy, it was about literally how you do it. What does that path look like? What should a bill actually say? Which is great. But how do you pass that bill? And then once you pass that bill, what happens after that? What happens during implementation when the bill needs to be defined, when its core terms need to actually be put into something that the states then implement into law? How much can go wrong there? And what do you need to watch to make sure it doesn't all go wrong? So I wanted to have Leah Stokes on the show. Um, Leah is a political scientist at the University of California at Santa Barbara. She's the author of a great book called Short Circuiting Policy, which is a book about clean energy standards that rolled out in the states over the past couple of decades and what happened in different states that either made those policies go really well or go really poorly. And at the core of this book, is a theory not just about climate change politics, but about how policymaking itself really works. And in particular, how part of it that is really hard to get people interested in works. What she calls the fog of enactment. What happens between when a bill or a piece of legislation or ballot initiative, or I guess even executive action is passed, and then when it actually becomes something that is changing people's lives and affecting activity on the ground. There's so much that happens in there. so much of it happens outside of the public's eye. So much of it happens in a way where it's really hard to do reporting on it. And even if you do do the reporting on it, very hard to get people interested in it. People get into the big collisions between the parties, the headline news. But 
after something's passed, they kind of feel it's done, um, which is very much not true and really, really, for specific reasons, will not be true on climate. So this is on one level a conversation about climate change and a book about climate change. And on another level, a book about and a conversation about what politics actually is, who the key actors in it are, and how policymaking works. What are the forces that are at play in it that we often underestimate their massive, massive power? And then how do you design policy in advance and design political systems in advance to account for that? As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Leah Stokes. Leah Stokes, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I've definitely listened to a lot of episodes, so it's really great oh, to I appreciate be in conversation that. with you. Yeah, the one with Varshini Prakash was really great. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, well, this is in that lineage, of course. We're going to talk a lot about climate. But I actually wanted to begin at a, a sort of deeper level of your book, which really struck me for being a theory not just of climate change, but of how politics and legislation itself works. And, and you say in the book that one of the arguments you're making is that we should understand interest groups and the conflicts between them as really the center of politics. Why do you see it that way? And can you talk a bit about what sort of the folk wisdom is there that you're trying to rebut? Yeah, so I'm a political scientist and the conventional wisdom in my discipline within American politics is that, well, maybe interest groups matter, but not as much as you think, and probably not when it comes to money and politics. And I just don't think that's true, especially not after Citizens United. And so what my book tries to do is show in practice all the ways that interest groups shape public policy. You know, we don't just get laws from like on high or from like perfectly uh, brilliant politicians and their staff. Interest groups are constantly meeting with politicians and their staff and giving them ideas and shaping policy. And sometimes those interest groups don't really know what's going on just as much as the politicians and the staff don't know what's going on. So the the book really builds on some earlier theories of kind of like bounded rationality that we don't always know what's going on. And it also builds on earlier theories from people like E.E. E. Schatzschneider that uh, interest groups are really the core of what's going on. And I'll say today that people like Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson are definitely within this camp. Uh, and my friend Alex Hurdle Fernandez, too, uh, who think that interest groups are central to American politics. But I wouldn't say it's the dominant view within political science. So, so let me, I think, frame some of what people might normally assume, which is that the public opinion is at the center of American politics, that politicians mm. want to get reelected. To get reelected, they need to do things the, the public likes. If they do things the public doesn't like, they're likely to, to lose office. And so both politicians and interest groups are bounded by the pre-existing and I would say importantly in this telling relatively stable and exogenous views of the public. Why do you think that's wrong? If only it were so, right? I kind of call that the folk theory of democracy, right? That, And other people do call it that in the discipline too. You know, it's like, we think the public has these views, that politicians listen to the public, that they make that into the laws. And unfortunately, we have a bunch of evidence accumulating that that's just not the case. So I did this study with Matt O'Meldenberger and Alex Hurdle Fernandez, where we surveyed chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress. These are the most senior staff who help politicians make decisions about laws. And we asked them, what do you think the public thinks about uh, gun control, something like an assault weapons ban? What do you think the public thinks about taking action on climate change? What about uh, the Affordable Care Act? And what we found across the board is that politicians, well, in this case, staff, 
dramatically underestimate public support for a lot of things. And so there ends up being an almost conservative bias, as David Brockman and Chris Govern have put it, in how our politicians and their staff think about what the public wants. So there's a there's a gap, there's a wedge between what the public actually wants on lots of issues and what politicians and their staff think the public wants. And where what is that gap? What, why don't they correctly perceive public opinion? I argue it's interest groups. They are the wedge. They are kind of a filter between what politicians and the staff think the public wants and what the public actually wants. And how do they act as a filter? Well, they run their own polls where they kind of give these leading questions and then they show that information to politicians. They also give politicians money. They meet with them. They get ideas into their heads. And so what we showed in our research is that the more a given office is meeting with, let's say the American Petroleum Institute, the more they're taking money from fossil fuel companies, the worse job they do at understanding the really broad scale public support that exists for climate action. And it's not just for climate change. We do this for gun control, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, a whole bunch of different issues. One of the things that always feels to me like a crucial ambiguity in this conversation is that it treats all issues as sort of the same mm-hmm. when they they seem to be very different and operate under very different dynamics to me. So I, I tend to think of this in, in three buckets, though easily one could come up with more, but that there are issues where there's a lot of coverage of them and people have strong pre-existing views for one reason or another. So for instance, um, should I get Medicare? Right. Should seniors get Medicare is something where like there's a lot of information about it. People get Medicare. They know a lot about the program. Um, I don't think interest groups have that much uh, capacity to come in and, and reshape public opinion on that or even reshape legislator opinion on that. Though sometimes mm-hmm. they, they do try. Then there's an issue where the public doesn't have much of a view on it, but it might become an issue that they begin hearing a lot about. So individual mandates in healthcare might be a a good example of that. And then I'm just going to stick in the healthcare space for a minute here because I know it well. And then there are issues where the public doesn't know much about it and probably will never hear much about it. So in trade deals, for instance, Mm -hmm. there end up being these huge fights over how long patents should be on pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most voters have like a huge... Uh, a, a huge pre-existing bias towards patents being seven years or 12 years or 20 years on different kinds of biologic formulations. Uh, but pharmaceutical companies really have very strong views on that. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about that, how things operate at different levels of public involvement, different levels of public information, and different levels of like pre-existing public views. Yeah, we could kind of talk about that as like salience or visibility or the intensity of public preferences. Those are some different things. And we actually did the same study that we did uh, on chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress. We also did it with state legislators themselves as well as their staff. We haven't published this work yet because we just haven't gotten around to it. But the findings are the same. And we did it with more kind of salient issues, something like the Affordable Care Act that everybody knows about, and much more obscure topics that, you know, this kind of patent things that you just came up with. So, and the interesting thing is that we're not seeing the gap in terms of the misperceptions across that dimension, at least not within this study. But I think you're right that within politics, There are areas where interest groups can have way more influence because the public is not paying attention. Um, And 
the fact is that oftentimes interest groups can even get language into laws. And it's not just the public that doesn't know what the consequences are. It's politicians themselves. And so I have this concept in the book called the fog of enactment, uh, which is basically this idea that when we're passing a law, oftentimes politicians who are voting on the law don't really know what's in the law. They don't really know what the consequences are going to be. And think about the CARES Act, which just passed earlier this year. That law has turned out to be in many ways a big fossil fuel bailout. And I don't think that everybody understood that that is what it was going to be, in part because of some uh, jurisdiction. You know, it was like the Fed had the opportunity to implement it in certain ways and you can't necessarily control what's going to happen, but also because it was a long law and politicians don't necessarily like read every word or understand what the consequences are going to be. So interest groups can kind of be sneaky and can stick things into laws, not only to go around what the public wants, but sometimes to even kind of hoodwink politicians themselves. So and then there's this whole other piece of this, which I think is going to be really important as we get into climate more specifically here. I think when people hear that a law has been passed, say the CARES Act or the Affordable Care Act or, you know, the Joe Biden, as he put it in the presidential debate, the Biden climate plan, right, not the Green New Deal. And they think, okay, if the law gets passed, then what's going to get implemented is the law. Um, And that's all written down somewhere. And you can go read it. Maybe I'm not going to go read it because I'm a busy person, but, but other people might. And if you read these laws, it's just an endless festival of and the secretary shall define such and such. Mm-hmm. Like in the Affordable Care Act, the secretary had to define essential benefits. They had to define qualifying plans. They had to define this and that mm-hmm. and the other thing. And particularly uh, as Congress has gotten weaker, particularly as there's more polarization, particularly as the Supreme Court has gotten more aggressive on certain kinds of issues, there's been a move towards delegating a lot mm-hmm. of authority into the agencies and into um, the regulatory process. And in the regulatory process, interest groups tend to be some of the only players paying attention. I mean, I covered the Affordable Care Act's passage. And I can tell you, it was just unbelievably easier to get people to pay attention to a huge fight happening in Congress than some regulatory process happening in a back room somewhere, you know, in which the only attendees were were lobbyists and a couple of advocacy organizations that had enough money to send someone. And so you end up in, it, it seems to me this is actually a hugely neglected space of policymaking, but one continuous strategy is making legislation more complex like shunting more of it into that into that space. And then that's a good place for interest groups to organize because there are so few other kinds of players organizing within it. Absolutely. We kind of have a spectacle of elections that we're living through right now. Then some smaller subset of people pay attention to policy making, enactment, you know, the passage of laws. And then we get to an even smaller segment of people who follow it through to implementation, which is when there's so much discretion and delegation. And the fight really continues at that stage. And a lot of, for example, environmental groups aren't equipped to follow that fight all the way into implementation. And that means we often get laws weakened, not when they're passed, but when they're implemented. Because as you said, there aren't as many people at the table. And groups aren't always very well resourced to be fighting. So in the uh, climate space, one of these key venues for these implementation fights are called public utility commissions, sometimes called public service commissions. They're basically the regulatory body at the state level that implements uh, electricity policy and particularly regulates monopoly electric uh, utilities. And, you know, intervening 
at these quasi-judicial bodies is really expensive. You need lawyers, you need, you know, witnesses, it's you need research and time. And utilities, they have all that in spades because utilities are actually guaranteed profit makers. They're monopolies that have a captured customer base and they get all the money that they spend back plus profit. So it's fine for them to spend money on these proceedings. But let's say you're a solar energy advocate or a consumer advocate who wants to keep electricity prices low or an environmental organization that wants to shut down coal plants. You don't have guaranteed money to go show up at this regulatory body and fight over the latest plans of the utility. And so there's really an asymmetry there in terms of the amount of resources that groups have to be fighting in implementation. And that's actually one reason why one of the solutions that I like to talk about is this thing called intervener compensation, um, which is basically money that can be used for environmental groups or consumer advocates so that they can have resources to actually intervene in the implementation process. Because often these groups, they want to be involved. Um, they want to kind of provide a counterbalance to those corporate interest groups, but they don't have the same resources that, for example, Monopoly Electric Utility has. So California has an intervener compensation program, and that that is a way that we can actually have more advocates intervening in this regulatory process, which is this much less visible, low salient venue where a lot of rollbacks can happen on climate policy. So, so I want to hold on solutions for a minute and, and I'll just signpost what is happening here, which is um, nerding out about political theory is often, but but for people listening, this conversation and, and I think your, your, your book is a warning that as hard as it is going to be to pass a climate bill, it is a terrible mistake to think the fight is won if that happens. So there are vast acreages of policymaking beyond that. And, and, and the other pieces we're building this theory that I want to add in is that it doesn't just get devolved over to agencies, but it gets devolved into states. That happened with the Rural Care Act. It happens with a lot of uh, a lot of bills now where there's a huge amount of leeway given to, to states to implement them. And I think that brings us really into the subject of your book, which is focused on clean energy standards in the states. So I thought maybe we could we could begin to move into that with uh, a concrete example. Can you tell the story in, in brief of Texas and their clean energy standards over the past couple of decades? Yeah, the Texas story is really fascinating. In the mid-1990s, Texas decided it wanted to restructure its electricity system, which basically means bring in competition. And one of the ideas that came up during that time was to run this big public opinion exercise where people would all get together. It was kind of like a citizen's assembly. They would deliberate over what the energy system should look like. And what came out of that process was a commitment to clean energy in this new way. And so these advocates, groups like the Environmental Defense Fund and Public Citizen, used the results of that public opinion exercise. And they said, hey, the, the public wants clean energy. They want us to clean up the air. They want us to build wind and solar. And so they managed to attach to this bill passing through the Texas legislature a clean energy standard. At the time, it was called a renewable portfolio standard. And what it said was that Texas was going to get a bunch of energy from clean energy sources, in this case, wind. And so Texas actually acted in 1999 before even California did to pass its first 
target for clean electricity. Um, and it ended up building an enormous amount of wind. And then in 2005, when they expanded the law, they actually put uh, $7 billion into transmission in that state because we started to get this positive feedback dynamic where they passed the first law, it built all these new wind energy companies in Texas, and those wind energy companies said, hey, let's do more. Let's build more clean energy and let's build transmission to support it. Uh, so Texas is really kind of a funny story where we got all this progress for wind energy really early. But then what happens? Yeah, the, the rest of the story is not as happy. <laughs> so what happens is uh, they also in 2005, that same year they invested in transmission, they also passed a solar energy requirement. We call this sometimes a carve out. It says of all of your total clean energy target, what proportion needs to come from some other technology than wind? Because since wind is the cheapest technology, if you say we have to build a lot of renewables, the only thing people are going to build is the cheapest technology, which is wind. So they tried to do for solar what they had done for wind, and they passed a requirement for solar. But when that law was passed, there weren't environmental groups at the table negotiating the final provision. So when it went to the Public Utility Commission to be implemented, what happened was fossil fuel group lobbyists showed up and they said, oh, hey, when we said we had a goal for renewables, that was legally binding. Because you see, we use the word goal. But when we said we had a target for solar energy, yeah, that was just voluntary because, you know, the word target, that means voluntary. So obviously, we don't have to do anything. And literally, legislators from the Texas legislature wrote to the Public Utility Commission and said, uh, no, you're not interpreting the law correctly. That's not what we said. And Governor Rick Perry had gotten involved. But they never implemented the law in a way that actually required solar to be built, which put Texas way behind other states in terms of deploying solar. Right now, Texas is getting into solar in a big way. But keep in mind, the year is 2020. And this was passed in 2005. And Texas actually has the largest solar potential of any state in the country. So really, they're way behind where they should be. And, and everybody loves to talk about wind in Texas, which is great. But Texas is actually about 10%, 10 percentage points below the national average when it comes to clean energy generation. So it's kind of a mixed story when it comes to Texas and renewable energy. And, and one thing I want to pull out on that story. So you have this series of clean energy standards and, and, and bills passed. And I know, I don't think you have specific numbers on this, but just as in as a very rough estimate, what percentage of Texans do you think knew that say that solar bill got passed? And then what percentage do you think knew that there was a legal fight over what the word target meant, such that the thing that that solar bill was supposed to be doing never ended up happening? Exactly, right? I mean, Look, I think some, maybe let's say 10, 20% of people in Texas knew about the clean energy law initially, and it maybe grew over time because actually when Governor George W. Bush ran for president, right after he had signed that 1999 uh, bill into law, he campaigned on this. He said, oh, I'm this champion, blah, blah. And really, George W. Bush did not push the clean energy requirement. There's a narrative about that, but that's not true. But he ended up sort of popularizing it and running on it for president. So I think that's a place where the public would have heard about it more and learned about it. And then, of course, groups, people who are part of environmental groups, they would have learned about it. But it wouldn't have been too well known. Now, when it comes to the solar requirement and the fight at the Public Utility Commission, I mean, it's probably like 
maybe optimistically one in 20 people knew about this, right? That's probably too optimistic. Maybe one in a hundred, right? Like people are not following public utility commission fights. People don't even really know what a public utility commission is. And that gets super nefarious and problematic when you have elected public utility commissions, which you have in states like Arizona, right? Because people are now voting for politicians to run these regulators that they don't even really know what it is. And they're paying very little attention to. And the turnout for those races ends up being really low as well. Desert Clown Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So you call this the fog of enactment, that a a bill or a proposition gets pushed into law. It's now into this phase where it has to go from being words on a page to something actually being implemented. And then the question is, how much room is there for for organized interest group combat to defang it? Or I guess one could hope maybe to to further fang it, um, which has happened on some bills at some times. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, has happened actually, I think, on, on some of the major environmental policies at, at the federal level that they got actually stronger over time because mm-hmm. uh, clean energy groups fought for that. But you identify four factors that you say increase uh, fog, or I put it fogability, which is one, novel policies that have not been implemented widely elsewhere. So there's a lot of room for definition. Uh, major mm-hmm. forms that involve complex and detailed rules policies that are in technical domains and policy areas that have overlapping jurisdictions across the state and federal government. Can you talk a bit about that from the standpoint of federal climate policy? Is is that the kind of policy that, as you see things being proposed by the Biden campaign and others, falls into that can get really foggy space? Or is there some reason to think it'd be protected? I mean, absolutely. When you think back to the Waxman-Markey fight back in 2009, which I know you know about, and I think you wrote about a bit at that time, 
that's that was a really long and complicated bill, right? And so I think 600 pages or something like that. And so people didn't read every page. They didn't understand every provision, right? The more long and complex your bills are getting, the more difficult it really is to understand what it's going to look like. And if you're designing a cap and trade program and you're giving all these free allocations to different industries, like how's that actually going to operate in practice? It's pretty hard to know in advance. You, One of the quotes I use in the book is actually one from Nancy Pelosi over the Affordable Care Act. You know, when that really long and complicated bill was being passed, she also said, you know, you, you're going to need to see what this bill is like when it's actually a law and when we can get it into practice and we can get outside of this sort of fog that the media is creating or that you know interest groups are saying here's what's in the bill or whatever and it's not necessarily accurate so a lot of the times politicians when they're negotiating over a bill struggle to understand what is it going to look like in practice and this isn't just like my theory i actually did surveys of politicians and their staff in state legislatures across the country and i asked them you know how often did bills do what you thought they would? And very, very few politicians said that they usually did what they thought they would or that they weren't caught off guard during implementation. So there is this fundamental gap between the writing of the laws and the implementing of them in practice. And I think with the federal climate fights that we're hopefully going to have in 2021, we're probably going to see a similar dynamic. If we have a comprehensive climate bill, it's going to be hundreds of pages long. It's going to touch electricity, transportation, buildings, heavy industry, agriculture, oil and gas. It's going to touch so many parts of our economy. And so it's going to be difficult in advance to fully understand all the provisions, particularly when they interact with state laws, right? What if you have an existing state law for clean energy? How is a federal clean electricity standard going to interact with that, right? You have to think all these things through when you have these shared jurisdictions between the federal government and uh, state legislatures and public utility commissions. I want to touch on that Nancy Pelosi quote for a minute because it's a it's a great moment in in, in politics as a as a teachable quote, which is <laughs> I, if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, it is we have to pass the bill so you can find out what's in it. Exactly. And Republicans jump on this quote and say, you know, this bill is secret. They're hiding it from you. What Pelosi means when she says that is that the bill is being misrepresented by all this mm -hmm. money being spent to, to defame it and Sarah Palin talking about death panels and that once it is passed, the American people will see that it's a good bill and they're going to enjoy it. And then there's a stronger version in which it is also literally true, in which Nancy Pelosi didn't even herself truly know what the, the bill meant. Like, for instance, when the bill passed, it included a provision about Medicaid the Supreme Court later struck down as unconstitutional. And so the bill that got mm -hmm. implemented was actually quite different in a very important way than the bill that got passed. So in some ways, Nancy Pelosi herself had to pass a bill to see what was in it. Um, the Secretary <laughs> of Health and Human Services had not yet defined essential benefits in the way they they ultimately would. So there are all these things that have been left open for sort of future regulatory process. So it just like really is the case that what gets implemented is different than than what gets passed. But I, I guess the question this raises for me as somebody who does policy reporting is I wander around the policy space reporting on the fights over whether or not the decarbonization target or goal or mandate, depending on how you want to think about it, is going to be 2050 or it's going to be 2035. And, you know, the um, Sunrise Movement gets mad at Joe Biden because he wants one further out. And then in the Biden-Bernie task force, they come up with an earlier one. 
And I want to know, in your view, does any of that matter, given how complex implementation ultimately is, how complex passage is? Like, should I see, should I see these battles, these pre-legislating battles over like very abstract goals like that as a meaningful part of policymaking? Or is that just like empty air? No, those those fights still matter. It's just a question of when we get to implementation, are those things going to be weakened or are they going to be strengthened in implementation? So we got to kind of plant a flag in the writing of the bill. We get a certain amount of the framework done there. And then the fight just continues over sort of some of the things that aren't outlined. So, for example, I was just talking to somebody the other day about transportation. And one of the most difficult things to do in transportation is to set a standard for when you're either going to not allow combustion engine cars, internal combustion engine cars to be sold anymore, or you can say we want 100 percent zero emissions vehicle sales. Okay, these things should be the same, right? Because like we're either saying zero percent internal combustion engines or 100 percent clean cars. Well, it's not actually quite the same. And this is material because, for example, last week, Governor Gavin Newsom in California said, no more cars in California will be sold on 2035 onwards that are internal combustion engine cars. That is an extremely bold thing that he did. It's probably not fast enough, fair enough, but he is out uh, in front compared to anybody else, any other politician in this country. Because it's not easy, first of all, to say you're not going to sell internal combustion engine cars. This is like the least popular climate policy. We've pulled it. It's really not popular with the people because people know about cars. They like them and they don't really want to be told what car they can buy. Anyway, he said no more ICE cars sold in 2035. All right. Now, how is that different than saying 100% zero emission vehicle sales in 2035? Well, it turns out if you were going to set up a system where you're having to sell more zero emissions vehicles, you're probably going to end up having credits, right? Where you're going to say, okay, you auto manufacturer, you sold this many cars. Some of them were zero emission vehicles. You get credits. And maybe those things can be banked. Meaning that if you are an auto manufacturer operating in 2025 and you sell some extra electric vehicles based on your target in 2025, well, maybe you get to keep those credits and bank them. So by the time you get to 2035, are you really selling 100% zero emission vehicles in the year 2035? Or are you basically using credits that you got from previous years? Wait, the idea is you could sell more than 100%? There would be some number in the law that you'd say like, I've actually sold 120% of the cars you expected me to sell. And so now I get to put that 20% forward. Exactly. So in a previous year. So let's say your target is you got to sell 20% of your fleet in the year 2025 as zero emissions vehicles, and you hit 22%. Well, you get to bank that extra 2%. You get to bank all those extra credits. And so by the time you get to 2035, maybe you're not at 100% yet, but you're dragging forward the earlier sales, which means that the Governor Newsom pledge is actually stronger, right? Because he's just saying point blank, No more combustion engine cars are being sold in the year 2035. There's no fudging around it. There's no banking. There's no negotiating over credits. And so these are the kinds of things that are going to end up mattering when we get to the implementation fight. But it doesn't mean that saying 2050 is when we're going to have our electricity system cleaned up is the same as saying 2035. Fundamentally, 
a 2035 target is way stronger because if we end up having some kind of like banking system that maybe fudges it and we get to, I don't know, like 2036 or 2037, that's not as bad as getting to 2050 and having some kind of system that's fudging it where you're now getting to like 2055 or something like that. So the rules in the law really matter, but the implementation fights over these specific decisions also matter for how we're actually going to cut emissions. How do you write a bill to give yourself the best chance of winning those implementation fights in advance? It's hard, right? Um, you need, there's a trade-off, right? Because sometimes you want laws to be ambiguous to give you cover. There's a funny story in the Texas case that we talked about where the Texas legislature is not exactly known for spending money. This is a legislature that meets six months a year, every other year. They don't, they're not in the business of big government. And yet they passed this really big transmission build out. And what they decided to do is defer to the Public Utility Commission to decide how much money they would spend. And they did that probably intentionally so that they didn't get blamed. And their estimates for how much money they were going to spend was like maybe a couple, maybe a couple billion. Well, they ended up spending $7 billion. And I actually have a quote in my book from one of the fossil fuel lobbyists saying, if we knew how much money they were going to spend on this transmission thing, we would have fought it a lot harder. So sometimes you want to keep it ambiguous so that, you know, the implementing agency, which maybe you have some control over because it has executive appointments and you have a Democratic governor, let's say, you want to defer to them. And then they can make these kind of technocratic decisions and maybe they can expand the pie, as we saw in that Texas case. But then there are other situations, like, for example, when we think about the Supreme Court maybe being very conservative and taking any kind of ambiguity and interpreting it in a bad way for climate action, where we really want the laws to be ironclad. We want them to be very specific. We don't want to give a lot of leeway to implementing agencies to sort of interpret things because that might be where things could get struck down in court. And there's a whole other problem when it comes to federal policy called the Senate. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have not, but I'd be I'd be appreciative for any information you can give me. <laughs> It's a thorny little institution we have. And, you know, they have all their own rules about like what can be passed if it's a budget bill or not and what's allowed to go in a budget bill and how many votes we need to pass something that isn't in a budget bill. Right. So layer on top of all these implementation problems, we also we also have to just think about how are we going to get these laws passed in the first place if we still have a filibuster, if we still have the bird rule, you know, how do we get these things through budget reconciliation too? So it's a very complicated issue and, and there are trade-offs, right? Because maybe you need to design a law in one way so that you could get it through a budget resolution, but that opens you up to more problems on the implementation side, potentially. Yeah. So I asked you how to write a bill to uh, win some of these fights in advance. And your answer just made me want to walk into the ocean um, and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I want to ask this question a little bit differently because I do think, I think this is such a, a key important issue. And it's something I think Democrats have often fallen down on in part because the, the technocratic mind can sometimes get a little bit too interested in complexity and 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 mm -hmm. into its own clever ideas for like managing conflicts between different groups. One way people say to do this is let's have the market figure it out. Let's put a big tax on carbon, 
Um, you can rebate it to people if you are worried about progressivity, as one should be. Um, so it doesn't need to be making people worse off. But let's put a big tax on carbon, on 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 emissions. And then instead of legislators trying to like figure all these little things out in advance and like what you know what the exemption should be for creating cement and and everything you're talking about. The market does it. And we use the tremendous information gathering power of the market to serve societal goals. Now, you're somebody who thinks a lot about legislative complexity and the ways these bills can be unwound when they are complex. And you're also not a big fan of carbon taxes. So why is that not the answer? Well, I just wrote an essay with Matt Mildenberger in the Boston Review called The Trouble with Carbon Pricing. Uh, and it's 4,000 words of my detailed thoughts on the matter. But the, the short version, the cliff notes, as we say, is that these things are also laws and they're also very complex. When we talk about the Waxman Market Bill, it was hundreds of pages and it included massive exemptions free uh, allocations for carbon pollution for certain industries. Certain industries were covered, others were not. There are carbon prices around the world. They cover about 20%, if I remember off the top of my head, of global greenhouse gas emissions that humans emit. And they are just riddled with exemptions. So for example, in Norway, where they have a pretty high carbon price, it completely exempts all these onshore manufacturers, often for things like trade, right? Well, oh, we don't want them to have to pay for the carbon price because they have to compete in a trade exposed market. And so they'll just pass it on. We'll just like export our carbon somewhere else, right? So we won't cover them. Okay. All right. In Mexico, for example, a lot of fossil fuels aren't even covered by their carbon price. Hmm, that's interesting. So in practice, you don't get rid of the politics. You can't just be like, oh, we're going to have a carbon price. It'll be a magic market-based mechanism. It'll magically work. It, It still has to be implemented. It still has to be designed. And in that process, all the interest groups that we've been talking about show up, they ask for their own sweetheart deals, they get their own giveaways, and the consequence is that usually the cap is way too slack, meaning that you have all these extra permits and the the price for a, a ton of pollution is very low, or the tax is extremely low because you can't get it to be any higher. And so the idea that economists have in their research about an economy-wide carbon price that's at a high enough level that will coordinate all our decisions across society. And then, okay, we'll do a rebate or a dividend and pay people back their money. That doesn't exist in practice. (laughs) So I don't know how magically, given all the constraints we just talked about with the Senate and the House and our federal government, that we're going to get that in the the United States, first of all. And secondly, even when it does exist, let's say in Canada, they have a carbon price and dividend. It doesn't actually make climate policy popular because what you're doing is you're raising the price of electricity. You're raising the price of gas. Those are very visible things for people. Everywhere you drive, there is a sign about what the price of gas is. And you're not, you're basically hitting people with a stick and you're not providing them solutions for how they can have an alternative. So my view is that a better way to do this is to have a government investment-centered approach, what we might call industrial policy, where we spend money from general revenues rather than saying consumers are going to pay for carbon pollution at this marginal level and hope that they buy electric vehicles or that they electrify their homes or uh, you know somehow they have cleaner electricity. I would rather say, let's think about the sectors. What do we need to do for buildings? What do we 
need to do for transport? What do we need to do for electricity? Let's set the standards and let's back that with large amounts of federal dollars, investments, and let's back it with justice so that we make sure that our investments are flowing to communities of color and to frontline groups. And so that's the approach that I think is more politically savvy. And I'll also say it is fundamentally Joe Biden's approach. Uh, this is the this is the kind of package that he has put forward as well. Why aren't these two great tastes that go great together? I mean, uh, the way people I think usually think about something like carbon tax is it raises the money for that mm-hmm. big government um, centered investment approach. Yeah, you can't you can't raise enough money. I mean, but I mean, you can raise some money. I mean, you got to raise the money from somewhere when you said when you said it'll come out of general fund revenues like there. There's only so much money there, and we're already operating at deficits. You could you could deficit spend everything here, and I tend to actually support that part. That tends to be my view on this, which is like let's yeah. pay for it later. But a lot of people don't hold that, and you do have a lot of members of Congress who don't want to vote for four trillion dollars on the on the credit card, and that tends to be actually particularly true among Democrats. They just voted for like a bunch on the credit card for the coronavirus. I, I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> I do, but it. I don't know. One of the issues with Democrats is that a bunch of them are genuinely true believers on deficits. And so mm-hmm. you end up having to work around them. I mean, this actually is my big question about some of the the take you just had on carbon taxes, which I'm not I don't find myself very um, like having a very strong view on. But all of the political economy questions you had about the carbon tax exist on all of this stuff, like all the ways that carbon taxes get uh, unwound and riddled with exemptions. That'll be true for any kind of economy-wide mandate. Um, the ways in which it's going to end up raising prices of fossil fuels that are scattered throughout the economy, that's going to be true on any economy-wide mandate. And so there's this way in which I feel like this can all tend you trend you towards a little bit of nihilism, right? If, I don't think it is true works. on yeah. the standards approach. I mean- But isn't your book about how the standards keep getting unwound at the state level? Yes, they can get weakened, certainly, but they get less weakened than a carbon price. We have fewer states with a carbon price right now than we have with the clean electricity standard. And we have 10 states right now that are targeting 100% clean electricity. We have one state that has a comprehensive economy-wide carbon price, which is California. So, you know, Yes, we have the same. We have similar problems across both. I take the point, but they're much less under the standards thing. Mine is to show all the bloody details of the standards. But if you want to read the same thing for carbon prices, you can read Carbon Captured by Matt Mildenberger. It goes through all that, and it is worse for that scenario. So that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, no standards do not have to be consumer facing. Those are choices, right? The federal government could do. Think about what Bernie Sanders proposed for his climate plan, right? The federal government could spend money, give out grants as the House Committee on the Climate Crisis has suggested, as Joe Biden uh, has suggested, as he did under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act through the 1603 Grants Program. We can spend federal money to do these things, whether that's buying back old cars, giving tax credits or more more to the point and better, direct grants to people to buy electric vehicles, right? There are choices about if we're putting this on consumers, which is fundamentally what a carbon price will do, or if we're trying to put it more into deficits, into general government revenue uh, through, for example, taxing billionaires, those kinds of things. So I do think that there are fundamental choices here about who pays. And the standards approach does, does not have to be primarily a consumer facing cost. The Ezra Klein Show will be back after a short break. 
Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Who pays under Joe Biden's approach? Well, these things aren't necessarily clear, right? (laughs) Per the whole fog of enactment thing. When you've got a couple pages of plans, you don't know who's necessarily going to pay. Um, You don't have the level specificity yet. You need to get to a bill in Congress, and really you need to pass the bill and get it implemented to fully understand who's going to pay. Uh, But I think in general, Joe Biden has a view that he doesn't want to raise taxes on the middle class, um, that he wants to make sure that sort of fossil fuel workers are brought along in the transition. He's got very strong ties with unions. And so um, I don't know if it's fully worked out yet, but I think there are ways to implement the vision that he has put forward in a way that puts it more on the deficit, on general government spending, than on consumers. I tend to be very uh, focused on the show, on the way the filibuster kills all good policymaking. And let me say, (laughs) my view is it, if there's a filibuster, this isn't happening and we're not solving climate change. But something I don't talk as much about, but I think is particularly important here, is this other role called PAYGO, which um, Mm -hmm, House mm Democrats, Republicans keep lifting PAYGO whenever they come into power, and then Nancy Pelosi keeps putting it back into place. But PAYGO just basically means you have to match um, all spending with either spending cuts or revenues. Uh, You have to, like, everything has to be budget neutral or better. And I do a lot of reporting on Biden, and like three days a week, he's a PAYGO guy, and three days a week, he recognizes he's gonna have to do (laughs) more than that, and then the seventh day, nobody knows. And so, like, one question I have for you is, if Democrats take the approach on this, given the size of the problem, that they need to pay for everything in real time, it basically means that you're going to have a a consumer-facing pay structure. Like, do you think it is possible to solve the problem under that constraint? Do you think that there can be politically a solution big enough under pay-go rules? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, Senate rules, so much fun, right? Um, These are House rules. I guess oh, Senate House rules. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's also the Senate. It also has to do with like if you're going to put it under a budget bill to get around the filibuster, you have to think about these things yeah, too. Yeah, that's true. Like too. the budget window. Um, isn't this fun? Uh, are we? Right? I don't know if our entire listenership is going to come along with us on this nerdy rules conversation, Ezra. Ezra Clancy listeners are here for the budget reconciliation <laughs> debate, but I'm holding budget reconciliation <laughs> to the side. That's a subcategory of the filibuster debate. I want to I want to talk paygo here because Nancy Pelosi would like to get rid of the filibuster, but at least technically, she would like to tell House Democrats. Um, or has so far, that everything needs to be paid for. And as you said, when it came to the CARES Act, they were operating under short-term emergency rules and they decided to lift that. So they can lift that. But I think when you're looking at something or when they're looking at something like a a multi-decade climate plan, they're not, they don't tend to think about that as like, well, we're doing this for six months and we figure it out later. Like we have to, they have to figure it all out now. When they did Obamacare, they more than paid for it. And the bill is worse and less popular because they decided to do that, like worse and less popular because they decided that they would um, it would be deficit reducing inside the 10 year window. Like that was a big thing for them. And like 
Sure enough, you have lower pre, you have lower premiums, you have lower subsidies or higher premiums, lower subsidies, et cetera. So like this is something where like the liberals yeah. in the house tend to think about things this way. So I, I want to know if you think I want to know if you think about Pago the way I think about the filibuster for issues. It, it, it's like a killer. Yeah, I've been learning a lot about this. I'm working on a report with Evergreen Action and Data for Progress about, you know, how do we implement some of these ideas? And we're having very long and fun conversations with people on these subjects. So yeah, it's an issue. Um, I think there's a couple things to think about. The Elizabeth Warren campaign was interesting because it was all about a kind of, I don't know if we should say pay-go, but it was sort of model where they tried to make everything balance out, right? They said, we're going to do this two cent wealth tax. It's going to bring in all this revenue and it's going to allow us to pay for all these ideas. So, you know, I think that she really helped move the dialogue there in terms of not just taxes on income, but also taxes on wealth. And when we have billionaires in our society who are, by the way, only getting richer during this pandemic, you know, those are questions that I think we should be asking ourselves. I think when we have billionaires who are only getting wealthier under the pandemic, we should be asking those questions. And a good number of billionaires, by the way, made their money in fossil fuels. And that's people who made money by extracting resources that really should be owned by indigenous people, first of all. And secondly, have externalized the harms from their products on all of us. So I don't know if that's really legitimate wealth in my view. Um, now we're getting to the takings problems, but you get this idea that maybe people shouldn't have as many resources, especially when they usually they got them from stealing those resources from others and harming others by developing that wealth. So that's one view on it. I think another view, which certainly people, I think Adam Tooze has been somebody uh, writing about this, you know, when you think about climate change, it is an issue where deficit spending makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's kind of like if you were going to retrofit your home. If you're going to do energy efficiency, maybe put solar, get rid of fossil gas in your home, you're going to pay some upfront costs. And then your electricity bills are going to be lower, right? You're not going to have gas bills anymore, and you're going to save money over the long term. So maybe that's a great opportunity to like finance it, to take on some debt at your household level, do all these retrofits, and then you can pay it back. And over the longer term, you're going to make money. Now, that will maybe be outside the hypothetical 10-year window that we're talking about in Congress. But the point is, with climate policy, we are doing things now that are going to create benefits in the coming decades, right? And so it is a kind of situation where deficit spending actually makes a lot of sense. And I think part of the problem that I see, um, and this is not meant to be ageist, is that a lot of our members of Congress are older and they aren't thinking about what it's like to be living in your 30s or your 20s or being a teenager and just looking out at what the world is turning into, watching an area the size of New Jersey burn on the West Coast this summer, you know, waking up to orange skies. People are just so scared. Even young Republicans are really scared about climate change. And so, you know, maybe it's easy to be like, oh, that's this, this issue's not that important. We shouldn't rack up the deficit for it, right? But I think when you're younger and you're looking at the kind of world that you're growing up in and you're trying to decide, like, should I even have a kid or not, which is really a, a major issue for a lot of people, um, 
you know, it's kind of like, really, you don't want to spend money today so that we can have a livable future. So I think that those kinds of conversations really need to be pushing this this sort of narrow minded view that like we can't spend money today to, you know, save the future of everybody who's like 40 or below. My, my line on this, which I now have to say while choking on the smoke um, that surrounds me all the time here in California, is yeah, if you if you think addressing climate change is expensive, wait to see how expensive not addressing climate change is going to be. Exactly. Uh, it's, exactly. it's really pretty bad. Speaking of California, uh, California has done very aggressive clean energy standards over the years. As you mm-hmm. mentioned, um, Governor Newsom recently came out saying they were, we were going to stop selling uh combustion engine cars here, internal combustion engine cars here in, in, in a couple of decades. They also, to some degree, have a, we also, to some degree, have a carbon price. Um, and you talk about California as somewhere where the feedback loop caught on, where the clean energy rules began developing mm-hmm. interest group pressure that began pushing for better clean energy rules. And so you've actually had a ratchet effect of stronger and stronger policy on, on, on this. What are the positive lessons, uh, if you still hold to that view, that can be learned mm-hmm. from California? Well, the first thing to note is that a lot of the progress we've made in California is not from the carbon price. Uh, it is from these standards that we're t- that we're talking about: the clean electricity standard, zero emission vehicle standard. What what California has done is taken the approach that I'm advocating for at the federal level. They say, "Here's where we're going to go," and they also back it with investments to the degree that they can at the state level. So, you know, I think that that this is a really clear model for a path forward. And what it's done is it's built all these businesses. So we have, you know, Sunrun, uh, a solar company that's based here um, that does rooftop solar all across this country, has a lot of employees, right? Um, We have unions who are building a lot of the clean energy in California because the way the clean energy standard was intentionally designed was so that most of the development would actually happen in the state and so that the state would capture uh, good paying union jobs in the process. And so those unions showed up for the fight to expand the policy and hopefully will show up again when we hopefully try to move the target forward from 2045 uh, closer to the present. So yeah, I think that this, this model of passing standards, actually building an industry through investment, having that industry gain a foothold, allows you to expand the policies over time. And this is exactly what we need to see federally too. We need clean energy companies and to a certain extent tech companies to be showing up in 2021 for a fight over federal climate legislation. Because too often the only groups that show up are fossil fuel companies, electric utilities, and fossil fuel intensive unions. They show up to say, we don't want to do anything. And the rest of the corporate community is silent on these issues. So we need more advocates who can actually see benefits in, you know, building jobs in these areas. That That is really the path forward that California um, provides a model for. When I think of the difference between California and Texas politically, one of the things that comes to mind pretty quickly is that Texas has a very strong, even dominant Republican Party. And California at this point functionally has no Republican Party. 
And I tend to take a pretty party-centric view of politics. I think about interest mm -hmm. groups, but I, I tend to think about them as mediated through parties. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you think about the relationship between interest groups and parties, and for that matter, party polarization. Like how much of what we're seeing there, it's not the Democratic Party is free of interest groups, of course, right? I mean, you've been talking mm -hmm. about unions and, and, and tech companies and other players there. There's a lot of interest groups with heavy power in the in the Democratic Party. But but different interest groups have different levels of, of, of traction in the two parties. So how do parties fit into your analysis? And, and why have the Democrats and Republicans diverged the way they have? Yeah, well, this is a key thing that I talk about in the book, and I think I build on the work of what we call the UCLA School of uh, Political Parties. I'm sure you know it. It's this basic idea that political parties— You're really warm in my heart here. Yes, I know. As a, that as they, a Bruin. <laughs> they— um, Political parties have interest groups within them, and you know these interest groups kind of influence the party platforms and things like that. Anyway, that's all very true, but I think— when we look at polarization in American politics, which I know you know a lot about, first of all, a lot of that polarization is asymmetric, meaning the Democratic Party has stayed fairly stable and the Republican Party has become rather extreme. And one thing that people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse points out is that an enormous amount of the money that the Republicans have for, you know, in terms of campaign contributions is from the fossil fuel industry massive amounts. We don't fully know because some of it is not going through a sort of um, direct channels. It's going through what we might call dark money groups, but an enormous amount is happening. And one key thing that what that fossil fuel companies and electric utilities have been doing is that they've been playing in primary fights, particularly at the state level, but to some extent federally as well. Basically what they do is that if you're a Republican and you decide, oh gosh, I really have like wind energy growing in my district. It's creating jobs. You know, this is this great thing. We we should have more clean energy. And you start to vote either to keep clean energy laws or expand them. Fossil fuel companies like Coke Industries, in the case of Kansas, show up and they say, hey, you're voting the wrong way on this issue. If you don't straighten up and fly right, we are going to pull your money and we're, you're going to find yourself with a well-funded primary challenger. And the crazy thing is, let's take Kansas, for example. Where do Kansas Republicans running for state house get their money? They get their money from the Kansas Republican Party. One of the main donors to the Kansas Republican Party is Coke Industries. Okay. They get their money from the Kansas Chamber of Commerce. One of the main donors to them is Coke Industries. And then they get money from Coke Industries directly. So fossil fuel money is in there all the way around. And if the party decides to pull money from you under pressure from one of their big donors, then suddenly you don't have money from any of your top donors. And instead, you find yourself with a very well-funded primary challenger. Now, let's say you still win your race, as, for example, Russ Jennings did in Kansas. This is the exact scenario that played out in Kansas for him. He ended up getting money from the wind industry, not as much as he would have had from the fossil fuel industry, but some. And he ended up winning re-election. Well, even if he wins re-election, everybody else in the party is watching. They're seeing what just happened to Russ Jennings, and they're saying, gosh, I don't want to be voting that way on that bill because I don't need a primary challenger. That's stressful. I don't want to lose my job. I don't need the threat of it. And so it sends a real chilling signal throughout the entire Republican Party that this is a litmus test issue. You do not want to be on the wrong side of this. And we've seen this play out federally. Take Bob Inglis, for example. He was a Republican in Congress who had a kind of awakening moment. He went on a scientific trip to, I think, Antarctica. He started to understand that climate change was real. His son said to him, Dad, this is a really important issue. You're on the wrong side of this. 
and he started to speak out and work on climate change. And what happened? He found himself with a very well-funded primary challenger. And so my view is that a lot of the polarization that we have seen, particularly in the climate and energy space, is coming through campaign contributions from interest groups, namely fossil fuel companies and electric utilities, and that that is dragging the Republican Party towards extremist positions. So there's a weird divergence here because, as you say, fossil fuel companies have a ton of money and there are similar donation rules that apply to the Democratic and Republican parties. So if it were just the money, you would, and it would be very valuable for for fossil fuel uh, companies to get the Democratic Party to go where the Republican Party has gone, which is into denialism or doing nothingism, um, or as you write, uh, sometimes just into straight up delay. Mm-hmm. And over the past 15, 20 years, what we've seen is a Democrat is the Republican Party has gone from having a pretty healthy number of Republicans who are open to doing something on climate change. For instance, John McCain had a cap and trade bill in his 2008 presidential platform, and he was a, a mm-hmm. co-sponsor of one in the in the Senate. Um, and then a couple years later, after a primary challenge, in fact, he begins questioning the science of climate change. Um, the Republican right. Party goes from being a player on this. It, you know, Newt Gingrich has this ad where him and Nancy Pelosi are sitting mm-hmm. on a couch together and they talk about how we need um, So I think it was a cap and trade plan as well. And the Republican Party goes from there to somewhere in between outright denialism or a do nothingism that is just as bad. Mm-hmm. And the Democratic mm-hmm. Party you know, in fits and starts, but actually becomes much more radicalized on climate change, or maybe you might say like like real-worldized on climate change, and begin developing much, much stronger solutions. So why have the two had such divergent paths? I mean, certainly Coke Industries and others would like to buy off more Democrats. So what? how does, how from the interest group perspective do, do the divergent paths of the parties begin to make sense? Well, There are still a lot of Democrats who take money from fossil fuel companies and electric utilities. If you look at what happened in Ohio with the first energy scandal where they passed a big coal bailout because of this dark money, $60 million campaign, that bill would not have passed if it didn't have Democratic votes. That is the fact. So it's it's not just the Republican Party that's contaminated with money from the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities. Even somebody like uh, Tim Ryan, who ran for president and took the no fossil fuel money pledge, turns out he was taking money from First Energy and just kind of lying about it. So, you know, this is this is not just an issue exclusively on the de- on the Republican side. There are some Democrats in the same seat. And when it comes to the sort of new emphasis on climate change within the Democratic Party. Um, Yeah, that's something that happened when I was pretty much done uh, writing my book. It really started to kick up in the fall of 2018. And, you know, I think what's happened is that the climate movement has become more politically savvy. We have groups like the Sunrise Movement that are willing to do a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office, you know, right after um, the midterms and say, hey, you need to get on the right side of this issue. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, by the way, is not a terrible climate person. She is the only person who managed to pass the Waxman-Markey bill, right? Like, fair enough. But, you know, this has been a backburner for the Democratic Party for too long. So I think that what's starting to happen is that we're starting to see a grassroots movement, the youth climate movement being really key to that, um, the environmental justice movement as well, being very influential in the Biden campaign, that grassroots groups are starting to say to the Democratic Party, like, hey, 
This isn't okay. You're sacrificing our lives for the sake of what? For delay? For money from fossil fuel companies? So I think that we're starting to see real grassroots social movements happening on the Democratic side that are starting to make some inroads. But really, we're only going to see how far those inroads have been in 2021 if we are so lucky as to have a Democratic-controlled Senate to some degree and a Democratic White House. So, you know, we haven't kind of battle-tested this coalition yet. That's going to have to happen next year. But but that's the question I'm leading up to here. And I take your point that certainly Democrats are not pure on this, but there's a giant difference between the parties at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think it mm-hmm. raises two questions, and particularly from, from an interest group perspective. Um, one is... At the national level, over an extended period of time, having watched things like Donald Trump getting elected and rolling back um, Obama's clean uh, power plant rules, Mm -hmm. can we have an effective climate change so long as the Republican Party is a federal force? Like, can we have an effective climate change plan so long as the Republican Party is an effective national force? And are there any lessons in the Democratic Party um, and how it has changed on this and 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 been pushed on this that can mm-hmm. be applied effectively to the Republican Party? Or is the Republican Party's structure of ideology and interest groups and uh, constituencies and so on such that it's functionally immune from that kind of pressure? Some people say, and I tend to think it's true, that in some ways the Republican Party is captured entirely by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry, though, is, is starting to wane. ExxonMobil, right, is no longer in the top 200 companies on one of the exchanges, I think the S&P. Um, these companies are really struggling financially right now. And so they're kind of like a wounded animal that's putting everything into this last fight. Uh, but at some point, the money is going to start to dry up and the Republican Party is going to have to reckon with its decisions. And I got to say, there is a growing contingent of young Republicans that are very concerned about this issue. There's polling that says that 44 percent of young Republicans are very worried about climate change. And so I think there is going to be pressure on the party as, you know, the fossil fuel industry really starts to wane and as young people in the Republican Party start to sort of grow politically and say like, hey, it doesn't really matter what my ideology is. I'd like to have a livable planet. I'd like to be able to have children, you know, and to know that where I live is safe and it's not going to burn down or get hit by a hurricane, right? So some of these fundamental material cost issues, I think, are going to start to hit the Republican Party in a way that it just hasn't yet. Um, Yeah, and in terms of the Democratic Party, I don't know if we can take lessons there because the Democratic Party is a much bigger tent, right? It's a lot of social movements, different groups, unions. Uh, I don't. I don't think that the interest group constellation is quite the same on the in the two parties. So this sort of outside politics lobbying through, you know, protest and social movements. I don't know if that's going to shift the Republican Party in the way that it has shifted the Democratic Party. I mean, what do you think, Ezra? I'm very pessimistic, <laughs> <laughs> um, and. The hard thing about climate in particular is it's an issue with a ticking clock. Mm-hmm. There are other issues where if you don't solve them quickly, what that means is the toll continues to increase in a linear way, but the problem doesn't become less solvable. Um, yeah. If we don't do anything, putting aside whatever might happen at the Supreme Court, assuming the Affordable Care Act just goes on the way it is right now, 
if we don't do anything to expand health insurance to those who still don't have it for 10 more years, it's not necessarily harder at the end of those 10 years. It's just people have died and there's been a, a terrible injustice happening in the meantime. If we do nothing on climate change for 10 years, the situation is unimaginably harder. Um, and if you're still thinking about things like keeping warming under two degrees, we're, it's done. And so there is a speed at which things need to happen and a reliability with which they need to happen now that is outside the normal functioning of politics. And people like to talk in the rhetoric of wartime mobilization. But I mean, I think you couldn't possibly look at anything more depressing than coronavirus, where with a imminent, like ongoing, watching the people around you die threat, we managed to pass a stimulus bill or two and then stopped. And now we've just gotten used to a thousand people dying a week. And it is the saddest, most depressing thing I could possibly imagine. And then when you extrapolate it over to other issues, it, it, it's even worse. And that's why, I mean, it's one reason I focus a lot on the filibuster, because what you're really not going to be able to do is get a bipartisan solution to this. Like that ship has sailed long ago. Um, so you need majoritarian mm -hmm. governance to be at least uh, sometimes possible. But in terms of the Republican Party itself, I take your point on young Republicans being a bit better on this issue. It's not going to come fast enough. No, it's not. And and this is also why, you know, the theory of change, which is like we need a bipartisan solution, which is a small carbon price, maybe with like immunity for corporate polluters. <laughs> you know, that's what's been being proposed, uh, being backed by fossil fuel companies. And when we look at what carbon prices do in practice, the best carbon price, the estimate, this is in British Columbia, Canada, is that it may be cut emissions two percentage points a year. We're talking about needing cuts at like eight percentage points, right? Way higher than that. So that's why I really think that we have a choice here. We have the filibuster, we have like bipartisan solutions that don't work, and we have the planet. We have our own lives. We have our own climate stability. And my choice is to protect all living beings, not to protect some Senate rules that were invented like what, a couple decades ago, if that? You know, not to like continue to put my eggs in the basket of magical kumbaya moments between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party when the Republican Party is fundamentally captured by fossil fuel companies. My solution is grassroots social movements, people in the streets holding Democrats feet to the fire and getting 51 votes and passing comprehensive climate legislation through the House and Senate. So, you know, don't lose too much hope, Ezra, because we still have an election. We still have a White House to win. We still have a Senate to take back. And maybe we don't need 60 votes, right? That's the big question. Well, listen, if people listen to me, we're definitely not going to need 60 votes. The question is Excellent. simply, <laughs> I when got it. and it, I it'll be, it'll be out by the, it'll be out by the time this comes out, but I'm about to publish 9,000 words on why we should get rid of the filibuster. So I'm I love doing, it. I'm doing my you part. Definitely put some climate stuff in there if you don't already have it. It's it's in there, but um, Excellent. but the but one thing I want to uh, hit on before we before we close out here, which I, I do also think is important, something you talk about in the book, is we focused here on the fog of implementation, um, and the what happens after a bill is passed, and then when it's in the in that in that period of actually being made into a, a, a on the ground reality. But you also talk in the book about the ways in which interest groups end up shaping public opinion itself, uh, particularly on mm -hmm. issues where there isn't a lot of pre-existing knowledge, but not only there. I was watching the debate the other night, and I heard Donald Trump talking about a $100 trillion Green New Deal plan. 
if there is actually a bill that a President Biden and a Speaker Pelosi and a Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are pushing, there will be billions and billions and billions of dollars spent finding the most unpopular part of that bill and then trying to scare the hell out of people about it. And parts of those mm -hmm. bills will raise prices for people. Parts of those bills will. Yeah. I mean, these are not everything here is going to be puppies and rainbows. So how do you think about <laughs> making something like this popular? How do you think about getting the feedback loops right so that um, people can look at it without a sense of dread? Uh, yeah. And it is harder once it is in once it is actually passed for Republicans to undo in much way that the Affordable Care Act has proven much more challenging than they anticipated to undo now that it's actually a, a law on the ground. Yeah, well, I think we have to put the benefits front and center. We have to focus on job creation, which is not just some, you know, idea in a white paper. If you get overwhelmed by climate change and the scale of what's necessary and the pace of change that's necessary, the flip side of that is there's a lot of work, right? We got to do a lot of things really quickly, which means there's a lot of jobs. And so I think making sure that we get jobs into communities across this country that are good paying jobs quickly is a way that we will have a constituency of people, of companies, of individuals saying, I really like this thing. It's keeping me employed. It's giving me meaning and purpose in life. It's allowing me to pay my paychecks. You know, this is a good thing. Take, for example, building retrofits. Probably right now your home runs on fossil gas, meaning if you're cooking dinner or you're heating your home, you're burning fossil gas. We got to stop doing that if we want to address climate change. And now our houses, they're all over this country, right? They're in every county, every town, every city, which means that there could be a company operating no matter where you are, including in like rural disinvested parts of our country, where that company could go to homes and retrofit them and take out fossil gas. That job cannot be taken overseas, right? Nobody in another country can be retrofitting your home. So that's the kind of job creation opportunity that can keep people employed. And it's not just going to happen in like rich, wealthy left-wing cities. It's going to happen everywhere. And the same thing if we talk about a huge clean energy development, a lot of the clean energy opportunities in the middle of our country, right? So this isn't just something that's going to happen on the coasts, right? This is something that we can really do to reinvest and to reinvigorate our economy and keep people employed. So my view is that if you start with a government investment and you begin to build that and you kick it off that way, you kind of create a seed, then eventually you're going to have private investment and the thing is going to snowball itself. So that's the kind of hopeful vision that I have. I think it's got to be around benefits, clean air, job creation, um, those kinds of things, and not just be about hitting people with sticks and costs. You have a, an essay in this wonderful new book called All We Can Save, which is an anthology of, of work from female leaders on climate change um, and has great poetry in it. And it, it's co-edited by, by Ayanna Johnson, who is a, a previous guest on the show. But one of the things that struck me about that essay is it's about your disillusionment with individual action mm -hmm. as an answer to a collective problem. I, I'm curious to hear a bit more about how you think about those two things. Uh, like. So many people in the climate movement seem really down at this point on thinking about things individually. And on the other hand, I'm often compelled by the idea that individual action is important because it gets people to think collectively. It makes them more open 
to collective solutions that reflect what their individual preferences have become. So do you mm -hmm. think there's a relationship between the choices you make as individuals and what we'll accept politically? Or do you think that, if anything, it's an inverse um, relationship and people just don't like uh, being pushed as an individual when there's not a systemic solution? I think it's great if people want to be vegan or if they want to eat locally. I think it's cool if people want to fly less or have an electric vehicle like I do. Um, but, you know, Bill McKibben has said this, uh, you know, the first thing you got to do is organize. And the second thing you got to do is organize. And the third thing you got to do is organize. Like none of us can solve the climate problem in our own lives. And I know that because I was a psychology undergrad and I ran these individual behavior change campaigns to try to get people to like save energy. And I went through this experience for many years. I saved some energy, yay. But at the end of it, I just found that this wasn't catalyzing those bigger changes that I, I knew were necessary. The theory that we had had was that when individuals take these actions, that it's going to catalyze, you know, bigger actions and bigger change. But the fact is that the government is really the structure of society that sets the rules that all of us operate in. And we need those rules to be set up in a way that requires clean energy, that requires clean transportation, right? We can't just clean it up in our own backyards, especially when there aren't even choices to be made. Take, for example, taking a train rather than driving. A lot of places in this country don't even have a train that you can take. So we need the government to be investing and making those opportunities available for us in the first place. So it's not that I don't think people can and should do what they want to do in their daily lives. I just don't think that they can think that that is the end itself. It is not, you know, recycling is not enough. I am a huge composter. I love it. You know, I, I have like two community garden plots. I have my own garden plot. I have 34 fruit trees. Like I'm really into all that stuff. I'm not saying other people shouldn't be, but I never view that as like my contribution to the climate movement. My contribution to the climate movement is pushing for policy change because that is a change that won't just change my life, that won't just shrink my carbon emissions, but that will shrink carbon emissions for everybody else around me and for generations to come. So we have to be focusing on these higher leverage opportunities. And it's really important that we don't fall into the trap of framing that the media is constantly giving us, certainly not you and your show, but or, or Vox in general, but mainstream media is constantly talking about climate change is about sacrifice and about giving up hamburgers and you won't be able to fly. And it's about shame and guilt and sacrifice. And that is not what this transformation is about. It is about job creation, clean air, equity, opportunity. That is what this is about. And so I just don't want, I want to push back against the framing that constantly gets put up there that you somehow need to be a pure person to be in this climate fight. It doesn't matter if you've got a private jet, I still want you pushing for climate action because we need to make change at the systemic level that will affect all of our lives, not just our own backyards. So let's say you're listening to this and assume person is going to vote. What is the high leverage thing that individuals can do to, to be involved here? What do you, when people come to you and say, okay, I want to be involved. I don't just want to be composting, although composting is great. Um, and <laughs> not eating as many hamburgers is great, although can eat, can eat beyond hamburgers. Um, what do you tell people to do? What do you think works? I enjoyed this little product placement. I totally had beyond meat just yesterday. Um, <laughs> well, I think you've got to organize, meaning join an organization. Uh, in that chapter in All We Can Save, I list a bunch of them. But for example, if you're a young person, the Sunrise Movement, 
or 350.org, the Citizens Climate Lobby, you know, their specific solution, the uh, carbon fee and dividend is not my preferred solution, but they're an amazing network of environmental advocates and they organize locally. So find a group that's working on these things and plug into it. The Sierra Club, how could I forget the Sierra Club? Love the Sierra Club. Um, you know, they've got members all across this country fighting to shut down coal plants, for example. You can plug into their efforts too. I'd also say getting involved in this election is the most high leverage thing you can do right now. I give away a lot of money to candidates. I go to fundraisers. I do phone banking. I give my time. So if you can write letters, text people, phone bank, give money, um, show up, uh, get call your friends and your neighbors and your family. All of these things matter so much right now because we're, of course, not just in a fight for our climate future. We're also in a fight for our democracy. And those things are fundamentally linked. Um, so, you know, this is not a time to feel cynical and disillusioned. When RBG died, uh, AOC went on Instagram and for 40 minutes gave this really great talk. And she said exactly what I think, which is that you can't quit now, you know, Fossil fuel companies, they'd like you to quit. The authoritarian takeover of our government, which is currently happening, they'd all like you to quit and get cynical. So you can't give into that. This is the time that we have to fight and get organized and get involved. Um, and that means getting organized politically and getting involved politically. And then if we're so lucky as to win the Senate and the presidency in 2021, the most important thing people have to do is pay attention to federal policy, call their representatives and send individualized emails, not just a form mail. Make politicians see that climate change is something that you care about. Because when we had the Waxwood-Markey fight a few, uh, decade ago now, that didn't happen. There was no grassroots movement. There was nobody showing up and saying, hey, we really need you to pass this bill. And so if you're listening to this and you're thinking about 2021, make sure that you're plugged into one of those groups that we talked about, Sierra Club, Sunrise, CCL, 350, um, because those groups are going to be gearing up and making sure that politicians know that the public actually cares about this issue in 2021. And then let me ask you the question we always on the show, which is what are three books you would recommend? Oh, gosh, so difficult. Well, I run a climate book club on Twitter, which is sort of fun. And one of the books we read this year was Rising by Elizabeth Rush. It's about um, sea level rise. And I think it was like a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It's a really amazing story, beautifully written, um, very readable. So I'd recommend that. Another book that I read recently that I loved was The Education of an Idealist by Samantha Power. Have you read that, Ezra? I have. She's on the show. It's like 600 pages, which you think would be long, but I just went by. Also, she has this interesting story about how they handled the Ebola crisis under the Obama administration, which I feel like is very relevant for the COVID moment. I guess I'm going to say the third one. I'm currently reading War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, and uh, that is an epic, very underrated book. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Uh, definitely worth reading. Uh, we were talking before the show, Leah and I, about because um, she was telling me she was reading War and Peace and how I'm totally uncultured and have read like none of the big Russian novels. So I'm actually going to take this, take this recommendation and, and start upping my education here. Your book is Short Circuiting Policy, um, which is great. And I highly recommend not just for the insights on climate policy, but on policymaking more generally in a more granular way than people typically tend to get it. It's terrific. It's a, it's a really worthwhile book to read. And thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me and for reading my book means a lot. 
Thank you to Leah Stokes for being here. Thank you to Roger Carmen for researching. Jeffrey Geld is off this week. So thank you to Jackson Beerfeld for engineering. These are Clanchos Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>